Thanks for listening. The following is an audio presentation from High Country Christian Church. For more information, please visit www.highcountrychristian.com. I want to jump back into what we've been talking about in our series titled Bold, the Miraculous Book of Acts. Today is part three, and we're going to continue in this teaching series all the way through summer. If you haven't been with us up to this point, um, we're in the middle of this series, and it's going to last us the bulk of the summer. And we're looking, we're going through the entire book of Acts all the way through um, from chapter one to chapter 28. And we have the interesting challenge of trying to pack that into an eight-week time frame uh, throughout the summer. And so I want to encourage you to take time each week and follow along with the reading plan that we've created for you. Now, uh, at the end of the service, that reading plan will be up on the screen and you can see it. It's basically four chapters per week. Last week, we covered chapters one through four. This week, we're covering chapters five through eight. And I want to encourage you, in order to get the most out of all of it, spend the time during the week reading those four chapters. It's an easy read. You can, you can do all four chapters in about, I don't know, 10 minutes maybe. Uh, so I encourage you to do that each day. And uh, that way, when we get to Sunday to review everything, you'll have already read it. We'll all be on the same page, and it'll be powerful. There it is. There's the, uh, there's the reading plan. Y'all can take a picture of that. We'll put it up again at the end of service if you haven't already done so. Amen. So let me give you a summary of these four chapters that we're covering today. Again, we're in chapters 5 through 8. Chapter 5 of Acts continues the momentum of the previous chapters and shows a church that is vibrant and increasingly influential in the city of Jerusalem. The gospel continues to circulate through the city and the body of believers continues to grow through the powerful ministry of the apostles. This early church is a powerhouse of evangelism with new believers being added daily. This chapter, this is chapter 5 still, this chapter tells of the church's love for its members with individuals selling property and donating the proceeds to fund the ministry or, or the ministry of the church in its early years. Chapter 5 opens on one such couple named Ananias and Sapphira who sell a property in an act of support but attempt to deceive the Holy Spirit by being dishonest about how much they were giving. Both of them pay for their dishonesty with their lives as they fall down dead in the middle of the church's gathering. It's pretty intense. Aren't you glad nobody's died at a church service lately? <laughs> Amen. I think, this, I think this shows how much God cares for the church in its infancy and how much he's willing to protect it from deception. This chapter also shows the Sanhedrin. If you don't remember what the Sanhedrin is, that's the religious governing body, the religious council of, uh, the, of Judaism in that time. And this chapter shows that the Sanhedrin are bent on silencing the apostles and the early church. The apostles find themselves in jail once again, and they are beaten this time for their faith. Yet this resistance still cannot silence them, and even one of the priests, a man named Gamaliel, urges the rest of the religious council not to oppose what God may be doing through the apostles. 
In chapter 6, some controversy arises as the church faces growing pains. By the time we get to chapter 6, roughly five years has passed since the Spirit of God was poured out on the day of Pentecost. And the church is having to embrace new structure, new systems, and leadership decisions. This is new for them. With the apostles recognizing that their time and focus should be spent teaching the word and spending time in prayer, seven men are chosen by the church members to oversee different practical aspects of ministry to the congregation and to the, to the uh, community. The chapter highlights one of these men in particular, a man named Stephen, whom the Bible says is filled with faith and power. I lost my place. There we go. Both the remainder of chapter 6 and all of chapter 7 tell of Stephen's boldness and martyrdom as he is the first saint in the history of the church to sacrifice his life for Christ. The last verse in chapter 7 and the first verse of chapter 8 introduce us to a new character named Saul. All we know about Saul at this point is that he's a Pharisee who's pleased with the killing of Stephen and is himself attempting to imprison and kill as many of these new believers as is possible. The persecution in chapter 8 against the church from the religious leadership in Jerusalem intensifies and gets violent. But rather than give up their faith, believers are scattered into other parts of the region. The chapter closes by showing us that the gospel traveled with those being scattered, and a new city is now being impacted powerfully by the message. The same explosive power that was experienced in Jerusalem is now being experienced in the city of Samaria because of one ordinary man named Philip who went and preached Christ to the people there. Jesus' prophetic words from Acts chapter 1 are beginning to be fulfilled because God's kingdom in the earth is growing. The church is expanding because the gospel is on the move. Amen. Amen. Let's pray again. Father, we thank you once again for giving us eyes to see and ears to hear. Help us to perceive and understand the things that we hear today that they may enter into our hearts as faith, causing us to grow. We give you the praise and thanksgiving for everything in advance. In Jesus' mighty name, and everybody said, amen and amen. Praise God. So Acts chapter 5 is where we jump into this, and um, I love these synopsises. I enjoy, like, looking through the scripture and just investigating and reading uh, these passages and then sharing them with you because I think there's just... It's just so cool to see the church being birthed and to see its early, uh, you know, its early practices and the things that it did and uh, just to, to see the church almost as a living organism uh, and to see that organism grow. It's like watching a child grow, you know? It's like you go from, from newborn to infancy, from infancy to toddler, from toddler to, you know, just a kid. I don't know what you call it after toddler. My wife probably knows, but... Um, you know, and, and it just goes on through adolescence and into adulthood. And, and here we are now looking at this 2,000-plus-year-old baby that we are a part of, but we get to peer back in history and see what it looked like from the start. And I don't know about you, but I get fascinated by that. 
So Acts chapter 5, as you guys know, we're taking from each chapter um, a different phrase, something that we're kind of locking onto from each chapter, just because there's not enough time to go through each verse, as much as I would enjoy that. Um, I've already been up here talking for eight minutes, and all we did was get through the prologue. So it's like, we gotta, we got to move through. But, but the, the key phrase that we're looking, from, looking at from chapter 5 comes from verse 20. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Acts chapter 5, verse 20. Boy, it feels real good in here this morning. Amen. I don't know if it feels good to you, but by God, it feels good to me. Amen. I feel bad from the folks on the stream this morning. It's just good to be in church. Amen. Uh, Verse 20 of chapter 5 says, Go stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. Go stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. I want to I focus on this phrase, and I took this one actually from the New Living Translation. So girls, you can put the New Living Translation of the Bible up there on the screen. Verse 20 says, give the people this message of life. Now I'm going to read Uh, some context here. We're going to start in verse 15 and get to verse 20 and look at this statement, give the people the message of life. Let's look at verse 15. This talks about Peter's shadow healing people. It says, as a result of the apostles' work, sick people were brought out into the streets on beds and mats so that Peter's shadow might fall across some of them as he went by. Let me tell you something. When God is moving and the power of God is present, you don't have to twist people's arm to get them to come to church. Amen? Especially not folks that are in need of something because if somebody hears that the answer is in town, the solution I've been looking for all my life is here, they're going to go and find it. You remember the woman with the issue of blood? In the book of Mark, she followed Jesus. She, she shouldn't even have been in that crowd. According to the Hebrew tradition, she was unclean. She could get stoned just by being discovered that she had this disease. And so she took literally a risk of her life to go into the crowd to press and find Jesus. Why? Because the Bible says she heard that he was in town. You see, when the power of God's moving, I think it was John Wesley gets credited as saying this. I don't think he actually said it, but it's a good statement anyways. He said, I like to let the Holy Ghost come and light me on fire, and the world comes to watch me burn. You see, when, you, when the power of God's moving in your life, you, we don't need a whole lot to attract the people that have needs. This verse of, of verse 15 here is a testament to Jesus' words in John chapter 14, verse 12, when he said, these things that I do shall you do also, and greater works than these. How many of you know Jesus' shadow didn't heal anybody? His clothes did, the woman with the issue of blood. But this is, this is a new precedent. This is outside the box of what Jesus did. This is a continuation of what Jesus started that people are all, they don't even have to have Peter pray for him just as long as he walks past him and gets a little nick of this shadow on their toe and boom, they get healed. Can you imagine? (laughs) Can you imagine having God so entwined in your life that your shadow heals people? It's pretty powerful. 
And th- listen, this measure, this level of power that Peter and James and John and the apostles in the early church and people like Philip and Paul and Barnabas and Timothy and John Mark and Luke and all these guys, this level of power and this, this, this anointing that they seemed to walk in was not only available to them. Amen. It's quiet in this church this morning. It's not only available to them. It's available to you. It's available to me. It's available to those who are hungry. I said to Gracie and Steffi before the service, they, they went and prayed for me before the service started, and I was so grateful for it because it was super powerful. And, uh, and as we were coming out, I said, boy, you know, it's really funny the things that hunger will produce. Jesus said, blessed are they that hunger and thirst after righteousness, they shall be filled. You start to hunger after the presence of God, it's amazing what the Lord will start doing for you. Amen. This power, this hunger that they walked in caused them to do amazing things. It's also the thing, incidentally, that caused the greatest amount of persecution for the church. The greater the works, the greater the persecution. The more you do for God, the angrier the devil gets. And I don't know about you, I'm happy to make him angry. Amen. How many of you just don't like the devil? I can't stand him. He's a turd. Amen. I love to frustrate him, which gives me all the reason I need to press in to God and get more anointing, get more power, get more people saved, get more stuff done for the kingdom of God, because I know it just irritates him even more. The greater works, the greater the persecution. For the most part, the devil leaves apathetic people alone. Amen? Let me say that one more time. For the most part, the devil leaves apathetic people alone. Amen. Now let's keep going. Verse 16. Crowds came from the villages around Jerusalem, bringing their sick and those possessed with evil spirits, and they were all healed. Peter has got a track record like Jesus' track record. He's got a 100% success rate. Doesn't say 42% of the crowd was healed. Says they were all healed. Amen? Verse 17. The high priests and his officials who were Sadducees, I'm going to avoid making a church pun with the word Sadducees and keep going, but this says the high priests and his officials who were Sadducees were filled with jealousy. We see the reason that the persecution arose, and a big part of it was jealousy. Why is that? Because the devil hates not being the center of attention. (laughs) I'm telling you, he's his own biggest fan. I'm telling you, the devil is president of his own fan club. He loves being in the center of attention all the time. That's how you can tell when you're walking in the flesh versus when you're walking in the spirit, by the way. If you have to be the center of everything, you may want to take that before the Lord and say, help me to crucify my flesh. Amen. Because the Holy Spirit doesn't stir that up in you. The Holy Spirit stirs you up to love and good works and and fruit of the Spirit and gifts of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit stirs you up to love people, and the enemy stirs you up to be the center of attention. Amen. If you can't say amen, say ouch. (laughs) The enemy will stir up people who are yielded to him in an attempt to grab the attention. So this is what we're seeing throughout these first handful of chapters in the book of Acts. The religious persecution is the strongest, and it's this religious spirit that's at work persecuting the church. I made this statement. You may want to write this down because this is a precedent from the book of Acts. The church in the book of Acts receives the greatest amount of persecution, not from the unsaved, but from the existing religious system. Now, there is persecution that comes from outside of the church, certainly. 
But in this early time, it's not the government persecuted. It wasn't the Roman centurions that were out hunting Christians. It was Pharisees. Pretty interesting, right? That religious spirit still wants to do the same thing today. Amen. Now let's keep reading. Verse 18. God, my kids are on it today. Good work, girls. They arrested the apostles and put them in the public jail. So these guys find themselves in jail again. Look what happens, verse 19. But an angel of the Lord comes at night, opens the gate of the jail, and brought them out. That's a pretty good escape plan. Amen? They didn't have to get a you know, plastic spoon and dig for 20 weeks to try to get out. It was just like the angel showed up and said, hey, let's go. Verse 20, this is what he tells them. He says, go to the temple and give the people this message of life. That's the thing from this chapter that we're focused on. What is God's answer to the people who are trapped in religion apart from relationship with Jesus? Go to the temple and give them the word of life. Bring them this message of life. In other words, go where the need is greatest and share the gospel. We, as the church, have the message of life. Only this message will bring life to people. They're looking for life in every kind of place. You've heard the old statement, looking for love in all the wrong places. They are, that is what the world is doing. That is what re- people trapped in religion that have no relationship with Jesus, that's what they're doing. They're looking for love in all the wrong places. But we have this message called the gospel that truly brings life to mankind. I think about John chapter 1. The Bible says, in him was life, and this life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness could not overcome it. What you have living on the inside of you has a life that the enemy cannot overcome. That's good news. Let's keep going to Acts chapter 6. Boy, I wish I could just camp on one of these and just spend a week talking about it. Acts chapter 6, we said that this is where the church starts to encounter some controversy. The key phrase that we'll look at from Acts chapter 6 comes from actually from verse 2. We apostles should not spend or should spend our time teaching the word of God, not running a food program. Now, how many of you know food programs are super important? Amen. If you can't say amen to that, maybe you've never been hungry. But to to those who are hungry, food programs are important. The practical elements of ministry started to surface in that early church, and they're now having to deal with problems that have natural results as opposed to uh, uh, natural solutions as opposed to spiritual solutions. The last chapter, Peter can walk by and and, his shadow can touch and heal a sick person and they immediately get healed. His shadow can't put food in their belly though, right? You see, there are things that the church has been equipped by God to deal with and bring solutions for that are practical, not just spiritual. We get to do as the church the best of both worlds, we get to take the gospel into a foreign nation and, and, and put it on the back of shoeboxes. They were talking about it uh, earlier, you know, what we're collecting for this month. What's it, notepads? We're collecting notepads for our Operation Christmas Child shoeboxes. How many of you know that's a practical thing that meets a need that opens the door and provides influence so now the message of the gospel can come in behind and actually influence people's lives? 
We do a disservice to ourselves, especially charismatic Christians, because we love the power of God. We love the working of the Spirit. And so we emphasize that sometimes to a fault. The church here in Acts chapter 6 is now facing its first recorded growth pain. Up until this time, people are getting saved. Everybody's having a good time. Miracles. A few folks died at one of the services, but we moved past that pretty quickly. Now, for the first time, we see the church recognize its need for organization and structure. Prior to this, it's all meeting in the temple, meeting in people's homes, gospels going out in the community, miracles, everybody's happy. Sometimes the mistake that we make is thinking that this is all that is important. We look at the early church, we look at the outpouring of God's spirit and the miracles, the evangelism, we get inspired by that, and we sneak right past the structure introduced in chapter 6. Things are going really great into the church until suddenly there's too many people to care for, and the apostles recognize they can't do this all by themselves. So what do they do? They begin to create structure and delegate responsibility. I know this part's not as exciting as the last chapter. There's two key takeaways from this. And I want you to hear this because this is very important. Two key takeaways from chapter six. Number one, ministry is work, and work is a good word. Amen? Come on, grace didn't get you out of work. Amen. Yeah, thank you. I knew Frankie would say amen on that. Grace did not excuse you from work. Manual labor is not a Mexican evangelist, okay? Manual labor work, it's a good thing. Some of you will get that when you're brushing your teeth tonight. I understand. Listen, work's a good thing. Amen. I, we, we, used to, we used to listen to a preacher back when I was a kid, and he said, how do you spell ministry? W-O-R-K. He's from Texas. W-O-R-K. Number one, ministry's work, and work is a good word. Number two, church leadership is not capable of doing everything. Amen. A little quieter on that second point. I understand. <laughs> you know, Sean and I were having a conversation about this quite a while back. Something that we've observed in the modern church in the last 25 years is this idea that a lot of people have that is, the church will do it. Like, oh man, I really want to get my neighbor saved. The church has got an evangelism program. The church will do it. Or, or, or this one, I hear this one a lot, and I've heard this one a lot over the last 10 years. You know, somebody ought to fill in the blank. Somebody ought to reach out to the folks in this neighborhood. You know, somebody ought to whatever. We really need to whatever. And, and, and at first I used to, as a, as a pastor, when we just got started and we didn't have anything and we had no resources and very few volunteers, I, I was like, okay, let's do it. And then me and my wife would figure out how the two of us were going to do it, right? <laughs> let's do it. That sounds like a good idea. That's how you get burned out. Amen. No, see, it's not the responsibility of the church to do everything. Who is the church? We're the church. If the Lord is bringing something up in your heart, maybe you might want to ask him, what is this for? Are you calling me to do something? Oftentimes, God will expose you to an area of ministry he wants you to function in by exposing you to a need that is present. 
And rather, a lot of times what we do is we mock the need. Like, oh man, those guys can't get it together over there. Hey, stop mocking the need. Maybe you're the one that's supposed to fix it. Amen, glory to God. You see, the church, our culture as a church, hear me please when I say this, our culture as a church needs to be a culture of involvement and excellence. We talk about excellence. We talk about diligence. We talk about a lot of these things. But this is why we have teams, legacy teams, to encourage you to serve. That's why we have next steps happening this afternoon. It's going to be wonderful. So that we can help you to figure out how has God gifted you as a tool in the body of Christ. You know how many Christians go through their life never accessing who God has called them to be and who he's called them to serve? Isn't that amazing? A lot of folks go through their life, they have no idea. If you were to ask them, what are you called to do in the body of Christ? Who are you called to serve? What is this area that God has connected you to? They don't know. I know what my nine to five is. I know that I'm supposed to be a good dad to my kids. I know I'm supposed to be a, a, you know, a taxpayer, an upstanding citizen. I'm supposed to do that. But beyond that, where's God called you to serve? The reality is the church isn't the same without your gifting. God puts something in you that the body of Christ needs. And I'm not just talking about Hope Church. I'm talking about the body of Christ. The church at large isn't the same without you functioning in your gifting. And you want to know what? Neither are you. You're not the same without you functioning in your gifting. See, we talk about serving, and oftentimes we, we posture it in what the church needs. Well, we, you know, we, we need some kids workers. Ooh, oh, man, it's getting tough down there. Well, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm not here to try to beg you to do something. The reason I'm bringing this up is because you're not the same you until you're serving. You're not the person God's called you to be. You don't have that sense of fulfillment that you desire to have until you connect to serving. You see, we always pit Mary and Martha against each other. Y'all know who Mary and Martha are, right? Sitting at the feet of Jesus is Mary waiting to receive from him. And in the background, fixing chicken salad sandwiches, is Martha over here. And, and, and yeah, Jesus corrects Martha, right? Jesus corrects Martha, and he says, Martha, you're troubled about very many things, but Mary has chosen the good thing. Well, that was the good thing for that moment. But then somebody had to fix dinner. You know, you know what I'm saying? Jesus just said, hey, Martha, take a break from what you're doing for a second because I'm pouring some things out. When I'm done, then you can serve us some chicken pot pie. You follow me? We always try to pit Martha and Mary against each other, but they're not. Sometimes you need to sit at the feet of Jesus, and then sometimes you need to get up off your butt and do something for God. Amen. And I'll say amen even if y'all can. Amen. Glory to God. The church isn't the same without your gifting, and neither are you. Neither are you. We got to keep moving. Acts chapter 7. Oh, man, once again, I wish I could just stop and camp on all these things. Acts chapter 7, the verse that we want to look at comes from the very end of the chapter, verse 57. Now, let me tell you what's happening here. One of these guys that's been chosen to serve is a man named Stephen. He's the first martyr. He's the first person to lay his life down for the cause of Christ. And chapter 7 details for us the stoning of Stephen, who was one of the seven chosen to serve in Acts chapter 6. Verse 57 says of this, 
When they put their hands over their ears, they began to shout and they rushed at him. Keep going. Verse 58. Keep moving, y'all. Man, I've just been singing the praises of my children. <laughs> well, they must be having some technical difficulties. We got the sound guys involved now. Here's what it goes on to say The accusers took off their coats. Here we go. His accusers took off, thank you guys. His accusers took off their coats and laid them at the feet of a young man named Saul. Now we see this guy, Stephen, he's full of the Holy Spirit, full of faith. He begins to ruffle the feathers of the religious elite immediately by what he's saying. And so they take him outside and they stone him. And, and chapter seven is, all, is basically just a rundown of his sermon that he preached that got everybody frustrated. At the end of the passage, when they put him to death, simultaneously we are introduced to a new person who will later become arguably the most important character in the book of Acts, and that's this dude named Saul. Now, most of us know the Bible well enough to know right away that Saul is the man who would later go on to become known as the great apostle Paul, the catalyst of revival in the early church. The church would not be the church without this guy named Saul. And I want you to see for just a moment where he started out. Because this text, the last chapter or the last verse in chapter seven and the first verse in chapter eight, these two little pieces of text are enough to convince me that nobody is outside of the grace of God. Nobody is outside of God's grace to forgive, to save, to deliver, to redeem, to heal, and to totally turn in 180 degrees. This guy, Paul, who is the doctor of theology, who wrote the two-thirds of the New Testament, the church would not be the church without Paul, but he didn't start out as Paul. He started out as Saul. Amen. He had an old identity. And then he encountered Jesus in a couple chapters. And in his encounter with Jesus, he got a new identity. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Amen. You see, I believe heaven's going to record that Brienne was one who changed the world and became a catalyst for revival, but she didn't start out as Brienne the believer. Amen. He didn't start out as Tim the believer. He started out as Tim the somebody else that had to have an encounter with Jesus first. And that encounter turned his life around. And now he can actually do something for the kingdom of God. Look at where Paul started. He was a murderer. I love how Luke inserts him into the story here because you see this obscure person get added to the timeline of events, and we don't know anything about him right now, except that chapter 8 opens with this statement. Saul was one of the witnesses, and he agreed completely with the killing of Stephen. This dude hated the gospel, and God turned him around to become the greatest proponent in human history of the gospel. Don't tell me the grace of God is not powerful enough to reach your family. 
Don't tell me the goodness of God and the gospel is not powerful enough to reach your dumb cousin who's doing his own thing right now. Don't tell me God can't get through to your parents or your children or your brother or your sister, your cousin, your aunt, your uncle, your father, your mother. Don't tell me that God can't reach the person you sit next to at work. If it could take Saul from being a a God-hating murderer to the biggest, greatest proponent of the gospel and the doctor of theology, the guy who wrote most of the Bible, if it can take him from there to there, what can it do for you? Amen. Saul was a bad dude, man. And his later conversion is absolute proof no one is too far gone that the gospel can't save him. No wonder he writes the words in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Why would he not be ashamed? Because he started out as a Christian killer. And now he's God's biggest fan. Acts chapter 8 brings us, in the last few minutes that I have, Acts chapter 8 brings us into a state of chaos and confusion and persecution for the church. Amidst the chaos that Saul was creating in the church, the gospel doesn't diminish, it actually increases. Saul tries so hard to squash the church by scattering its believers, but he only makes the problem worse. Amen. Look at this. Let's read this together. Saul was one of the witnesses, and he agreed completely with the killing of Stephen. Watch what happens now. Uh Uh-oh. We're training new guys back there. Amen. Good job, guys. Good job, y'all. You rescued it. Watch what happens in verse one. This is amazing. A great wave of persecution began that day, sweeping over the church in Jerusalem, and all the believers except the apostles were scattered through the regions of Judea and Samaria. Now, most people in that situation would go, oh, no, chaos, panic, not good. But if you remember in chapter 1, what did Jesus say? He said, you shall receive power After the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem first, in Judea, which is the region Jerusalem was in, in the city of Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth. So this is actually fulfilling the scattering of people into other parts of the community is fulfilling the prophetic word that Jesus gave in Acts chapter one. So you might look at it and go, this is devastating. There's persecution arising and people have to run for their lives. Yeah, but you know, God can take a mess and make it something beautiful. Amen. God can take the scattering of a church and actually cause the gospel to ramp up because of it. I was thinking, uh, there, was a, there was a minister, uh, he's still alive, he's still ministering in the nation of Peru, his name's Jim Andrews, and, and uh, we got to travel with him to Peru. It was my first missions trip back in 1999. It was one of the most amazing things in my life. And Jim, I remember him saying this. He talked about how when he was in his uh, garage one day, He was teaching at our church, and he said, I went to step on this spider, because he hates spiders. Who doesn't, right? Amen. Glory to God. They're terrible. And he went to step on this spider, and as he did to mash it out, like in the split second, realized it was pregnant. And so he smushes this spider, and in doing so, all these little baby spiders come out running out from under his foot. It's the stuff that nightmares are made of. (laughs) Amen. Amen. I hope I didn't just ruin your lunch. Okay. 
But he used that, I'll never forget this, he used that as an example of when the enemy tries to persecute and block out and stop the church from being the church. You know, the Bible says, had the principalities and powers known, they would have never crucified the king of glory. Had they known that by stamping out Jesus, you were going to get all of us, they would have never done it. And here is Paul in chapter 8 trying so hard to squish out the gospel and squish out this church in Jerusalem. And what does it do? Everybody just goes somewhere else and starts preaching. And now Samaria turns into the new Jerusalem. And everybody's going, do you hear what God is doing in Samaria? Saul tried so hard to squish the church by scattering its believers but he only made the problem worse. Three thoughts from this chapter as we get ready to close. Verse five tells us about Philip. The Bible says, Philip went down to Samaria and preached Christ to them. I'm gonna read it to you from the New King James because this is my favorite version of this. Y'all are fine, just leave it the way it is. Look what he says here. It says, Saul made havoc of the church, entering every house, dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. And therefore, verse 4, all those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. Check this out, verse 5. Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ to them. And the multitudes with one accord heeded the things spoken by Philip, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who were possessed, and many who were paralyzed and lame were healed, and there was great joy in that city. Three thoughts from this chapter. Number one, Philip was an ordinary guy. I know that doesn't sound like a very heavy revelation, but if you think about it for a second, it'll weigh on you. Philip wasn't an apostle, wasn't a pastor, didn't have any special title. In fact, the only title that Philip had was Christian. Philip was just one of those guys from chapter 6 who had got chosen to serve. Everybody in the body of Christ elected those seven guys and said, well, you know, Stephen's full of faith in the Holy Ghost. Philip, he seems like a really good guy. He's faithful. Let's have him be one of these servers. And just two chapters later, Philip is the one who goes to Samaria and flips that city upside down. Why? He was just one of these ordinary guys that got a hold of God. And God got a hold of him. Number one, Philip was an ordinary guy. Number two... Philip preached Christ. If you're taking notes, I want you to write this down. Philip got the right results because he preached the right message. Amen. Philip got the right results because he preached the right message. Again, you can't, remember what I said a couple weeks ago, you can't argue with fruit. You can't argue with fruit. The fruit is always the proof of the message. The message that doesn't produce the fruit or produces the wrong kind of fruit is the wrong message. The message that produces the right kind of fruit is the right message. Philip got the right results because he preached the right gospel. And number three, there was great joy in the city. 
Regardless, please hear this, regardless of what modern godless people in society may want to tell you, Christianity makes a place better, not worse. There was great joy in the city, the scripture says here. The city didn't go into decline when the gospel there. It increased. It rose. You can look throughout all of history from the time of Jesus to the time of right now. The gospel has not diminished society. It has improved society. I remember listening to a guy, and I'm finished, by the way. You can close your Bibles now and get ready for lunch. Amen. I remember listening to a a rabbi. Uh, a man named Daniel Lappin. If you've never heard of him, I suggest that you check him out. He's awesome. And Rabbi Lappin has talked at great length, and I won't even try to do it justice, but I've heard him talk about how so many countries throughout the world have been bettered because of Christianity, because of Judeo-Christian principles and beliefs. We have, a, we have a humanistic society that would try to push against what we believe and convince us that Christianity has made the world worse, not better. I'm here to tell you that's wrong. The gospel has improved culture, not diminished it. And if you want proof... Go over to Europe right now and look at all of the refugees who are fleeing other parts of the country. Let me ask you this. Are they leaving Europe and going to North Africa or are they leaving North Africa and trying to come to Europe? Why? Because for all of its faults and all of its challenges, Europe was established on God and on the principles of Christianity. Again, I'm not going to try to do justice to things that Dr. Lappin has said, Rabbi Lappin, but it's amazing. When Philip preached Christ, the city improved. It got filled with joy. People's lives got better, not worse. I'm here to tell you the same is true today. What's going to make Boone better? Right? What's going to make Boone better? What's going to make the, the homelessness rate go down? What's, what's going to what's make the rate of hungry children in our community go down? I'm all for the practical elements of ministry, right? Isn't that what I said earlier? The church has to be practical in what it does. I'm all for that. But you know what really makes the place better? A move of God. A move of his presence. When we go into the community and preach Christ to people, and Christ begins to do the things that only he can do in their hearts, society grows. Society gets better. Amen. I'm here to tell you guys, the gospel's the answer to the world. We shouldn't be ashamed of it. Amen. Amen. I hope that wasn't too heavy for you. Let's stand up to our feet this morning. We hope that this message inspired you and filled your heart with faith. If you would like to visit our church, check out www.highcountrychristian.com for service times and location information. Thanks again for listening to this audio presentation from High Country Christian Church, where Jesus loves you, we love you, and your life counts.